This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Today, Ed Miliband, of course, the previous Labour leader, um, he is now in the shadow cabinet, but Ed Miliband 2.0 is quite fascinating because he regrets not being bold when he was leader. Now he is bursting with ideas. His new book, Go Big, is full of the sorts of ambitious ideas that he thinks uh, a government should be doing right now. But... Hmm, interesting. Does that really fit with what the current Labour leadership is doing? So I talk about his ideas, about his political regrets, and, yeah, is Labour offering a radical alternative? It's it's a very interesting conversation. Um, Ed is a great guy, and I think one of the nicest guys I've ever met in politics, and that shines through in this interview. Do support the podcast. You keep the show on the road with patreon.com forward slash ownjoes84. You help decide what we talk about, our documentaries and so on. Do uh, subscribe to the podcast, podcast even. Give us five stars if you feel so enamoured with it. And with that, please listen to me and Ed. I am very honoured to have Ed Miliband with me. I mean, you're uh, not, not really honoured. You're not really honoured. I am hugely honoured. Ed, I mean, don't honored. get your snarky little digs in at the outset. I won't allow it. I'm, I'm honoured. <laughs> it's great to have you. I'm not going to bother introducing you because if people don't know who you are, it's just a bit odd. Um... We are going to talk about your actually very, very good book. Everyone should read this book. It is actually. It is. It's a great book. It's called Go Big, How to Fix the World. For regular viewers who are confused about this setup, we're actually currently in Somerset in a hotel room 26 minutes before we're supposed to be kicked out. So that's that ticking time. Do you think they might give you a bit of extra time? I think they've been... we've, We've explained to them that we're interviewing you. So... That might we'll get see. out earlier, though. I know. We'll see. We'll see how that one pans out. You know. Well, I don't know. I haven't asked their opinions. I haven't asked the receptionist desk's opinions on on you. I mean, why not? I sh- well, I will on the way out. No, 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 don't. Okay, don't, don't. I, um, right. Right. I'm going to ask the guy that he'll just say he was the guy that ate a bacon sandwich once. Yeah, I mean. I mean, you really are the signature bacon sandwich eater of our time. So, Ed, um, yeah. um, just to kick off. So, you, of course, were Labour leader, and you have spoken about in this book and elsewhere about how you wish you'd been bolder. And I understand that, you know, interesting, because I would say I did whinge about Labour, as I always do, uh, when you were leader, but I always thought you had this vision, you had an analysis, which I thought I agreed with about the, you know, market economics being broken, but there wasn't the solutions 
the scale of, there wasn't a scale of solutions yeah exactly what i'm interested in is i suppose the why and i, I suppose i'm interested because you're what like like i am americans called red diaper babies so both our dads were revolutionary socialists but you were also a new labor political advisor so i'm interested in that kind of what tensions between the eds because now you're known as ed miliband 2.0 the kind of full full fat ed and back then you that's not what you were offering if we're going to be really honest so what i'm wondering is what kind of stopped you being the you know the ed with those convictions of your beliefs was it a structural thing was it within the party was it being torn between your political advisor background and your dad's politics what 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 was the reason probably a combination of all of those actually um i mean that's a really interesting question i think uh, you know, Labour was coming out of government, of having 13 years in government. I stood for the leadership because I wanted to move the party on from New Labour. And I had a certain analysis of the country, inequality, uh, the, the the sort of vested interests that were holding, um, the holding the country back some, you know, big vested interests in, in, on the, in business. Um, uh, and, and, and I had a sort of sense that we, I wanted a more radical offer. Um, and I suppose, well, self-critically, I was good at the analysis. And I think there's a whole, but, but, but less good at the boldness of the solutions. I think when you added up my solutions, maybe they, they, you know, they, I still believe that the 2015 manifesto would be much better than what we uh, ended up with with the Tories. But, but it wasn't, I, I was, I've said before that you know, I, I didn't have the radicalism that some people wanted and I didn't have the reassurance other people wanted. I was sort of caught between two stools. I mean, I think there's a whole range of reasons for that. We were coming out of government. I was trying to move the party um, sort of on from New Labour and that was and that was a hard thing to do. Um, you know, I wanted the party. I always thought that divided parties never won elections. So I wanted to hold the party together. Um, fundamentally i take responsibility i can't blame anyone else i take responsibility for not having done it you know it's, it's my fault and nobody else's um i think there's also this thing though that friedman milton friedman the right-wing economist said which is it's the ideas that are lying around that get taken up when there's a crisis and i think after the financial crisis of 2008 and in a way this is a kind of important starting point for the book um you know it was a natural end for a certain settlement, the sort of Thatcherite settlement from the 1970s, 1979 to then. But I'm not sure that the left, I'm not saying there weren't the ideas on the left, but you know, I think, I think where we are now, there's been a lot more intellectual, political and other work on that, on those ideas. So I think in a, we're in a sort of different place maybe. I mean, that's, that's my best explanation. Um, as we speak today, Boris Johnson is meeting Viktor Orban, the far-right leader of Hungary, whose regime is anti-Semitic, Islamophobic, racist, I mean, it's like the whole shebang, to be honest with you, sexist, anti-abortion, very transphobic, they've essentially banned all trans rights in the country, um, at war with democracy, proudly speaks of a liberal democracy. In, in my, I've been to Hungary, I've interviewed dissidents there, and in my darker moments, I worry that that kind of authoritarian populism, um, which there are echoes of in our own country, to be honest, it's not as bad as Hungary, but it's kind of more in the direction of Hungary than we should be comfortable with. Poland's another example. You can see Le Pen in France doing very well in the opinion polls. She's the far right candidate and there's a presidential election coming up. 
I mean, do you worry that if the left doesn't offer progressive, inspiring solutions, you've now got a right, which actually is quite savvy. They're not the kind of just cut everything like Cameron Hill's yes, done. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Look, you're onto something really important, and I say this in the introduction to the book. My reason to go big, to have big solutions to the problems we face is starts from, you know, we've got these massive crises of inequality, of climate change, of recovery from the pandemic, of what the pandemic has exposed. Um, and we need to go big because that's what the, the, the moment demands. It's not a sort of political, it's not, it doesn't start as a political strategy. But I also happen to think that the only way you defeat the populist right is by showing you've got solutions that meets the challenges of the moment. And, and the reason I say that is because the populist right, you've seen it with Brexit, you've seen it with Trump, you've seen it with Johnson. They are taking traditional left causes, inequality or, you know, leveling up in the, in, in Johnson's language, um, uh, sort of decent jobs, all of those issues. They're taking those issues, the NHS, they're taking those issues and saying, well, look, you know, we agree that those are big problems and it's we who can solve them. Now that tells you something about where, I mean, I actually think this is a cause for optimism in a way because it shows you where the terrain of politics is being fought. In the 1980s, you weren't born, I don't think, or maybe you're just about born, but you know, in the 1980s, when Labour was out of power, um, the, 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 the fight was on the right, the, the, fight, the economic battleground was on the right. And I think that is different uh, from now. But I think we can't let the right feel the space. You know, I, as you know, Owen, represent a constituency, Doncaster North, which voted substantially for Brexit. People will often say to me, oh, was that about all about immigration? And I said, well, look, immigration was one of the issues. The EU was one of the issues. But much deeper than all of that was the number of people who said to me in my constituency, I want a new beginning. I want a decent future for my kids. I want a decent future for my grandkids. Where is the industry? Where is the investment? Now, you know, the point is, we on the left have got to be the people that speak to that agenda because if we don't speak to that agenda pernicious forces are going to speak to that agenda i was born in 1984 ed let's just get that clear i've just got oh, it a was a compliment over. it was a comp i mean you i mean you look like you were born in 2004 i mean you know uh and i mean that in the nicest I'm way i wish i looked like i was born in 2004 I've got Tony Blair's portrait in my attic and anyone who's seen his recent TV appearances can see there is a direct correlation in ageing. So um, I suppose that Thatcherism, which you just mentioned, Thatcherism yeah. itself, this populist kind of narrative, which was the individual will be freed from the dead weight of the state and the suffocating collectivism and so on. That's, that was its kind of offer. And what I'm interested in your book, it does look at this, is looking at, how the left can reclaim freedom and democracy. So, you know, democracy isn't just you go out and vote occasionally, but uh, in terms of your parliament, but for example, in the workplace, economic democracy. So yeah. I'm interested in that. How can the left tell a story, which your book, I think, does, about actually freedom and democracy being central to our vision and narrative? I think it's really... Um... Uh, it's a really important uh, point. You know, the way the book thinks about this is I say, uh, let me take this in two, two parts. You know, there was an old social contract and there was a sort of Thatcherite social contract very much modified by uh, New Labour. Um, but there, there was a sort of Thatcherite social contract which was supposed to be 
that was the theory about setting the individual free and so on. And I sort of think that, you know, actually, when you think about the circumstances we face today, so many people don't have freedom. You know, if you're deeply insecure at work, if all of the risk at, at, in society is loaded onto you, if you could be sacked at any moment, you know, if you could be fired and, and rehired, something that's been sweeping through parts of our um, economy, uh, if you don't have any savings to fall back on, you certainly don't have freedom. So, and there are just, you know, there are just so many different ideas out there that can address these issues. A universal social inheritance, so giving every young person anything up to £10,000 as a platform uh, for the future, you know, more kind of further away, the idea of the universal basic income. I talk about that um, in the uh, in the book. Decent social housing, billions, building millions of social homes. That is a way of protecting key people against freedom. It's about giving people freedom. It's about giving people a base in terms of a roof over their head, a, a sort of, if you like, a guarantee of that, not being in the insecure um, uh, a private sector, uh, which had all of the problems that has, creating decent jobs through a, through a Green New Deal, another way of giving people um, a, a kind of proper platform uh, on which to stand, are not, are not insecure jobs in the green economy, but, but, but secure jobs. So what's, what really strikes me is, and this is what the book is trying to say, is there are so many good ideas out there. You know, think of it, and I think people, lots of people get depressed and think, oh, you know, there, you know, what, what can we do? You've got Johnson in government. I think what I'm trying to convey to people is a sense of optimism. At, at least think to yourself, at least see that there are, um, that for any problem we face, there are there are big solutions out there. And then just uh, briefly on this, on the democracy question, representative democracy on its own is a magical idea. And we've got to defend it. And when it comes to voter ID and all of those things the Tories are bringing in in order to disenfranchise people, we've got to defend representative democracy. But in the age we live in, people have higher expectations, and that's a good thing. And there's lots of experiments to draw on here. You know, citizens' assemblies, I talk about a permanent citizens' assembly on the climate crisis, where you have, you know, a representative sample of people kind of advising government, a bit like the expert climate change committee does, on what are the things that we should be doing, a way to, to give people power, giving young people power over budgets, so that they can work out how money um, uh, uh, should be should be spent in our society. Extending votes at 16, that's a way of, of building representative democracy. You know, properly devolving power, not in certain parts of the country, not with the centre holding all the power, not saying if you want to do something about the buses, you can't have a municipal bus company because the centre will only give you a permission slip for certain things. So I think these two things that you're mentioning, Owen, which is giving people real freedom, and freedom from risk, crucially, because the, the, the risk that people have loaded onto them is massive and and kind of revitalizing our democracy and, and, and giving power away. I think they're two incredibly important sort of elements, if you like, of what we need to of what we need to stand for. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So the pandemic has been the biggest emergency the biggest global crisis since World War II. We can all agree it's been a grim experience and it's still got a way to run, particularly globally, and we've seen the horror in India. And yet, actually, the climate emergency remains a far bigger long-term threat because it's actually existential. Now, we know that if uh, there's a global target to keep uh, global temperature rises below 1.5 centigrade above pre-industrial levels by 2030. Otherwise, we're in a lot of trouble. Now, a lot of people would think, to be honest, it's too late. We buggered that up badly. We're not going to bring down global emissions to the level we're going to that need. And as a consequence, we're going to have people forced from their homes. We're going to have terrible extreme weather events, droughts, uh, famines. I mean, what do you think? Is it, you, you know, what are... They're in the book, partly, of course. But what are those solutions? Younger people, you've mentioned genuine younger people, not people who just look a bit young, who've been at the forefront of this, and, and they want action. What would you tell them in terms of what can be done to that stop we, that? That we can do it. And don't believe the people who tell you it's about the limits of technology. It's about the limits of imagination and political will. I mean, you know, this idea of the Green New Deal, lots of people talk about it. Why am I a believer in the Green New Deal? You know, partly, and, and it relates back to the New Deal under Franklin Roosevelt in the 1930s in America, when America was in a terrible depression. And, and the, the argument I make in the book, and I think this is really important, Owen, for the way we talk about the climate crisis, is it is about an economic stimulus. We've put forward a plan for a, an economic stimulus, a green stimulus. You see what Joe Biden is doing in the United States, a $1 trillion a plan over the next 10 years to invest in green industries. Now that is incredibly important, but I, I wanna make one a sort of a second point about this, which I think is, is actually the key to unlocking this, which is, which is the insight of the Green New Deal, which is the New Deal in the 1930s was not just about stimulation to the economy. It was also about rebalancing power and creating a fairer and more equal society. And, and look, here's my case on climate. We will only take people with us and we will only deserve to take people with us if we don't say, well, we're going to have the, we're going to transform our society from the high carbon unjust world to the low carbon unjust world. In other words, what takes people with us is insulating every home in the country, changing the way it's heated, cutting people's energy bills, creating the green spaces that we know have been so important uh, during this crisis and which are incredibly unequal in who has access to them. Uh, and 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 who doesn't reorienting our towns and cities around walking um, and cycling, making the electric cars uh, of the future uh, affordable, improving our public transport 
uh, system, creating the good jobs at decent wages with unions playing an important role, social partnership uh, in the green economy of the future. And look, there is work crying out to be done. There's work crying out to be done. Um, but it's, it's not just about a stimulus. It, it is about a stimulus and the world is not doing nothing. The Tories aren't doing nothing, all of that. It is also about this, this, this incredibly important idea that as we meet the climate challenge, we put economic and social justice at the centre. And just, let's challenge ourselves, Owen. I think the environmental movement, of which I consider myself a part, have not been good enough at having economic and social justice at the heart of our vision. And those interested in economic and social justice haven't been good enough at having in the environment and the climate crisis at the centre of our vision. And on your point about this being the decisive decade, absolutely. You've got to, we've got to absolutely go for this hell for leather, you know, and we've got to push the Tories to go for it hell for leather and push countries around the world. And COP26, the meeting in Glasgow in November is incredibly important. And we need much, much greater ambition uh, and we need to push the government for much greater ambition. It's almost exactly half a decade since the country voted to leave the European Union. A lot of those voters are now, well, the vast majority and at the absolute core, obviously, Boris Johnson's electoral coalition. Some of them used to vote Labour. They're not very Labour anymore. Um, your constituency voted very heavily. I think it is actually the most pro-Leave Labour constituency left standing. You can correct me on that. But it's, in any case, a huge number of people voted to leave in your constituency. So on that basis, given... You know, you you your job is partly to speak to, to lots of people in your constituency who voted to leave. They're not listening, a lot of those people anymore, to not just Labour, just to, to the left. A lot of them are convinced by Boris Johnson's offer and they see him as the change candidate. They don't see him as an old-style Conservative at all. So how can the left reconnect with those well, voters who clearly just stop listening? Look, the, 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 the fight is on. The, the fight is on in relation to that. And that's definitely true. I mean, I think we, you know, we've been through the most grim experience as a country through the pandemic. And that has totally understandably is the front of everybody's um, minds because there's been so much sacrifice and pain and suffering during this period. But then the question is, what do we build after the pandemic? That, that is the question that occupies me, and that's the question that occupies, in a, in a sense, my book. And, you know, I think you, 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 you had a really important insight in the question, which is people are thinking that Johnson is offering change. And that's the question. Who can deliver the change? Now, I do not believe, Owen, I just don't believe that the Tories are going to offer the change my constituency needs. Are they going to deal with the zero hours contract problems? No, they're not. Are they going to deal with the deep insecurity that is in our economy? No, they're not. Do they believe in the role for government in really investing in, in the green jobs of the future that I've just been talking about? Not on the evidence that they are showing. Now, if you're saying to me, do we have an absolute fight on our hands to show that we can deliver the change? Completely, we do. But I tell you what I'm absolutely convinced about is that there is a that doing the right thing for the country is also the right thing for the Labour Party in the following sense that there is a coalition to be built which spans from Doncaster to some of our big cities uh, to which which is for the economic change the country needs we can't you know people say oh well you can't unite the kind of you know younger more metropolitan Labour voter living in a city and the former Labour voters who, who you know may have voted Tory at the last election or may have voted for the Brexit party um, 
in in places like Donbass. I don't believe that for a moment. I don't. I think the notion that that the interests are wildly different. I just don't. I just literally don't buy. You know, young people are really in in our cities are really worried about the insecure economy we have. They care about climate change. So do people in my constituency, by the way. But that's the point about the climate vision: is we've got to say to people who are worried about getting to the end of the week, look, you know, this tackling this climate emergency can help tackle that problem too. It's not just about doing the right thing for people and planet, you know, where the big, big implications are going to be sort of one, two, three generations uh, hence. So, you know, it, it's a fight and politics is a fight and you certainly don't give up the fight. And I think it's a winnable fight. Uh, Tony Benn, who I believe you, used to, I think you interned for him, didn't you? You knew him I well. Did. Anyway. I did. He was close to your to your dad, obviously. And I, did. I, I miss I miss him very much. Don't my know. O levels, my O levels are in his diary. Oh, of course, God, he was very fond of you. I know, um, but he he always used to say, um, you know, he, well, no, he said he, lost, he left Parliament. I can't do it. And I can't, that isn't a rubbish. Impression. I mean, you really can't. I mean, you I'm really slighting. Can't. I'm slighting the memory of Tony Benn. He was did that. Well, was really, I mean, that was really not good. I do apologise to Tony Ben. I'm sure he'll forgive me. But um, he said he left Parliament to spend more time in politics. And, you know, one of the things which your book does look at is this idea of change happening, not often because of the goodwill and generosity of the power, but because of the struggle of people Completely from below. Completely right. So talk about that. Fight for 15. What are the things you've learned since you stopped being leader of the Labour Party and you were surrounded so by political advisors, uh, some so of much. whom were... No, yeah, no. so go on. Tell, no, tell us about that. No, what others can learn from that? Don't do it, my advisors. It's all I, I take full responsibility. I had excellent advisors. Now look, so no, um, um, well, let's not argue about that. Um, so, so look, here's the thing. Um, if you look, I, I, so when I this is some more uh, kind of a, a anecdotal, but I, when I lost the uh, general election in 2015, I went a few months later to do a course in community organising. Um, a sort of six-day training course. I'd sort of grown a beard by then in order to hide my identity, which wasn't very successful. But um, so, uh, and you know, that's sort of the first, the, the last part of the book is about how we make change happen. And oh, and there are, you know this, and from to the work you do, there are so many inspiring uh, people all around this country and all around the world doing this. The fight for $15 minimum wage in the US, some of your viewers may and listeners may know about it. You know, it started off with a few hundred fast food workers in New York City saying 7.25 an hour is not good enough to live on. 22 million people, that, that is a, a movement that has now got the minimum wage up to $15 an hour for 22 million people. It, you know, Joe Biden is, is at least in theory committed to a $15 federal um, minimum wage, whether he gets it through Congress is another matter. You know, what is happening in Preston, lots of people have written about it, and the, but, but not just in Preston, the whole community wealth building um, movement, which is about saying, we're not just going to go for the lowest price procurement, we're going to use the power of procurement to pay the living wage, to encourage employee-owned companies, all of those things. You know, that is a sort of, um, a kind of, you know, really massive idea, this whole community wealth building movement that we're seeing all around the country. The divestment movement, divesting from fossil fuels, again, it starts on college campuses. And that goes to your point, uh, and the point indeed that I make in my book, which is, you know, Part of the progressive condition is getting knocked down and getting and picking yourself up again and recognizing that powerful movements are what fundamentally create change. I mean, politicians, of course, make a difference. The notion that politicians are sort of irrelevant, you know, if Mrs. Thatcher hadn't been elected, things would have been, uh, they were, some of what had happened would have happened, but it would have been very 
uh, uh, different. But, but you know, part of the reason for hope is the movements of people. And by the way, business people who are arguing, you know, they're part of this too. Progressive business people um, who are like organizations like the B Corp, the others who are saying business can't just be about profit. It's got to be about people and planet uh, as well. And, you know, it, it's, it's hard to take the long view in this. But the National Health Service was, I think, the, the first conception of it, one of the first conceptions was in the minority report in the poor law in 1909. Okay, it came to fruition in 1948. You know, LGBT rights. Think about the, the fight that Stonewall and others had against Section 28 in the 1980s. And okay, you know, we still have a lot to fight for uh, in terms of, you know, against prejudice. Um, but, but think how far we've come. So I do believe, I do believe that it is people that in the end, create the circumstances of change. And by the way, just goes back to my uh, to earlier uh, question. You know, the fact is, and it has taken a lot, but the centre of gravity on political debate around economics has shifted to the left it, since I was leader in 2010. I mean, it just has. You know, if you think about the, the field that the Tories are playing on, it, 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 you know, they've, they've been forced to recognise some of these issues. Now, that doesn't you know, take away from the pain and the, the problems of and massive problems of having a Tory government in power. It's not like it's a consolation prize, but it is reason for hope. So your book is called Go Big, correct? And you're absolutely right. This is a time we've had the biggest financial crash since the Great Depression. Uh, we have the biggest political crisis, as you know, um, Brexit for however long. Uh, we had, uh, of course, now the biggest health crisis for 100 years. And with it, the Do you like my Moomin's mug, by the way? I'm just admiring my Moomin's. Let's have a shifty. Is it a Moomin? You need to put it in the camera. Sorry, for those sorry. who are listening to the podcast, it has a very, very fetching Moomin's mug. Oh, there they are. Very cool. Very snazzy. Yeah, can see him. Very cheerful fella. Yeah, I think you're using this as a deflection technique. No, because no, no, I'm no, about no, I'm not. I promise you. Don't you use Moomins to deflect me for a very no, no, serious I'm question. Not, I'm not. So I'm, go big, you're right? You're an experienced political interviewer. I'm just a novice, you know. Yeah, of course, of course. Of course, Ed. Just an amateur. Go big. Go big. If I was going to sum up Labour's vision today, I wouldn't just say it's go small. I would say it's go very, 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 very small. In fact, so small you can't actually see it. I, look, I'm a student of Labour history. Uh, I'm, you know, I joined the Labour Party aged 15. Not a fashionable thing for a lefty to do back then. Tony Blair was leader. Um, I don't think any Labour leadership has been so bereft of vision or any sense of what it wants to do with political power at any point in the history of the Labour Party since it was founded as the Labour Representation Committee in 1900. So I suppose that's my question to you. You No, no, back... hyperbole, no hyperbole there then. Well, name a leader, lacking name a Labour leader who lacked uh, less vision. Don't include Ramsay McDonald. What? What's the okay? Uh, let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. And don't, by the way, on social media, do not mock Ed for this because this is not his fault. What is Labour's vision? Sum it up. I think Labour's vision. Look, Keir is on 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 Keir is on my book. Labour's vision, I believe is about the fairer, more equal society, the, the, the sustainable society that we need. And it is about transforming this country and the deep inequalities we face. That is absolutely our vision. And, you know, look, Keir has faced a uniquely difficult set of circumstances uh, as Labour leader. I mean, he hasn't even, he, I think he's spoken to an audience for the first time uh, in his 14 months as Labour leader um, in the last sort of two weeks. You know, 
he's come into the pandemic, he's provided opposition, held the government to account, but in a time of national crisis. He himself has said that at the core of his vision is transforming our economy, transforming the economy we have into the one that, that we need and that tackles the deep inequalities of our society. And look, as I, as you might expect me to say, Owen, leadership is a collective enterprise, right? Look, and it's on me, it's on other members of the shadow cabinet, it's on all of us to show that vision. That's what I'm trying to do, contribute ideas with this book. You know, I hope it helps the debate, not just on some of the issues that we've talked about, on gender equality, fathers leave. There's so much to fight for in the, in our country. So I don't, I mean, on the pandemic, without getting bogged down in it, but, you know, look, Dominic Cummings, not someone, obviously, who's who, who we should be extolling the integrity of, but it was a confession as well as whistleblowing that he did, exposed a catastrophic failure on the part of the government throughout the pandemic, which I, I do think Labour has terribly failed to hold the government to account, leaving people to conclude, well, the government messed up, but Labour wouldn't have done any better. So that's led to resignation. But I suppose, you know, OK, here's a, here's a concrete question, I suppose. I'm, I'm interested in what you think about this. Keir Starmer made 10 pledges during the leadership contest. And, and it's very different. The, the reason I bring this up is honesty in politics is really, you know, it's hard for a politician to gain honesty. Uh, as a as a trait which is accepted, but very easy to lose and never get back. So he made a promise: ten pledges, increase taxes on the rich, corporation tax, scrap tuition fees, you know, green industrial revolution. He, he made a series of commitments. Is the leadership still committed to that? Do you think? Yeah, I think they. I think we are. But but of course you've got to adapt your manifesto in light of circumstances. But you mentioned the green industrial revolution, right? You know, we've been leading the fight that says we need a proper green stimulus in this country in my area. We need a 30 billion green stimulus, at least a 30 billion green stimulus over the next, uh, over over the following 18 months, the coming 18 months, uh, to, to, to create the green jobs that we need in our society. But the thing I'd say, Owen, is the sort of bigger picture of this is, is, is this, which is, look, I was the leader. I know it's a, it's a hard job, right, being, uh, being leader of the Labour Party, you get all kinds of advice. You've got to be yourself. I mean, you've got to be yourself and go out and, and argue for what, what you believe in. And I think we've we've been in an exceptional period in the last year um, or more. And we have a, of course, I recognise that we have all have a collective um, obligation to be bold, to show, to show the boldness that I think the moment demands. And judge, you've got to judge Keir and you know, the rest of us on this, on what, you know, on what follows because of this, because we have been in this exceptional period. Yeah, I get it. I mean, you know, I, I mean, you've done very well there, I have to say, given, given the material that you have from the Labour leadership, which is not very good. But I mean, you know, I heard the other day, one of your colleagues say, oh, we would set out a vision, but the pandemic got in the way. That's not what Clement Attlee said during World War II. He didn't go, Oh guys, you know what? Oh, we'd really like to set out this ambitious vision for the country, but there's this bloody war going on. They said the war shows that we need to be ambitious. When we win the war, we got to win the peace. I, I, well, I completely anyway. agree. I completely agree that the precedent of 1940. No two, no two periods are the same, and I'm, you know, the the pandemic is obviously different from World War Two. But I think, I think, you know, at the kernel of the idea. Well, for me, what what is the, what does the pandemic show? It shows who has power and who doesn't in our country, the power to work from home, the power not to work from home, uh, who gets paid properly, 
you know, uh, the key workers, uh, so many of our key workers in social care, for example, childcare, you know, doing some of the most important jobs in our country, uh, paid the least, the most insecure, that's got to change, our underfunded public services. And if you're asking me, and, and a whole host of other uh, things uh, too, and if what the need for green spaces, build back better in terms of green, if you're saying to me, is that at the core of Labour's vision as far as I'm concerned? Absolutely, it's at the core of Labour's, um, of, of Labour's vision. And, you know, look, I wouldn't have written this book. I wouldn't be part of the Shadow Cabinet if I didn't think it was part of Keir's vision as well. You know, as I say, um, I think you've got to watch this space. And I, I accept, I accept the challenge, which is we've got to show the kind of society we would create. And the next election is going to be a change election. And it and it and and you know Johnson is going to be claiming he offers change, and we've got to offer a bigger, better, bolder version of change. And I am absolutely committed to that, and I know Kira is too. Well, we'll see. And uh, I will watch this space, which is currently a big empty space, a void even. Anyway, that's me. Sorry, enough mischievous behaviour for me. This is a brilliant book, everyone. I really do recommend it. Uh, Ed's, I think, not just you know his imagination. Uh, his creativity shines through. But also, and I, I'm not saying this to suck up, but politics does not always attract necessarily the best flavour of human being. Same in the media industry. Uh, and Ed's uh, is, I think, very rare in politics in, in the sense he's, I think, one of the nicest guys I've met in politics. And his humanity shines through um, in this box. So it's a real honour to have you on the podcast. Everyone go and order now, preferably from an independent bookshop. Go Big, How to Fix Our World by Ed Miliband. It's a great book and we're very lucky to have had him. So thank you so much, Ed. Thanks so much for having me on, and I, I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, do support us on patreon.com forward slash owenjones84. Help us decide who we talk to, what we talk about, the documentaries we do, uh, and also on the supporter function, uh, which you can see in the description. And leave us five stars and a review. It's just helps other people listen Uh, and with that thank you so much speak soon planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more and it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.